Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is your host, Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. The cost of prescription drugs has become one of the hot political issues of our time. Progressive politicians like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have called for strict regulation of prescription drug prices. And as the midterm results indicate, their ranks in Congress are going to grow next session. But Donald Trump, too, has grumbled about drug prices and at times has threatened drug companies with further regulation to keep those prices reasonably low. The pharmaceutical industry has been a target of criticism and public anger for decades over what are deemed excessive prices. And the anger is understandable since people's health can often depend on a regular supply of drugs. Few people understand how drug development works, however. A new drug, for example, takes often more than a decade to bring to market, and the potential for financial losses can be enormous. So that's why we invited John Tierney, City Journal contributing editor, to talk about his piece in the new issue of City Journal, What the Prescription Drug Debate Gets Wrong. It's a masterful and clear discussion of what's at stake in this very important debate. After the music, we'll talk with John Tierney. We hope you enjoy. Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is John Tierney. John is a contributing editor at City Journal, and before joining us, he was a reporter and columnist for many years at the New York Times, and he is a best-selling author. His latest piece for City Journal is called What the Prescription Drug Debate Gets Wrong, and it appears in our autumn 2018 issue. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Brian. Now, critics of the pharmaceutical industry, big pharma as they often call it, say that the prices of prescription drugs are getting so high that we're reaching a crisis in America. And it's true that Americans tend to pay more for drugs than Europeans, in some cases a lot more. Thus, on this view, we need more regulation, including price controls, to bring those costs under control. What's your general response to that idea? Um, there are problems with the pharmaceutical industry in the way the drugs are regulated and priced. But on the whole, Americans get a much better deal than Europeans do. And if we, and if we imitated them with price controls, as the Trump administration has unfortunately just recently started to do by, by having Medicare, uh, they're talking about having Medicare set its prices according to Europe, which basically means importing their price controls. But if we um, imitated Europe, it would hurt us and it would hurt the rest of the world. How so? Can you explain that a little bit? Uh, well, America has been called the pharmacy of the world because more than half of new drugs are, are, are developed here. And, and developed by private companies. Exactly. And, um, and, and, and um, those companies, uh, the, uh, the hub of pharmaceutical innovation used to be in Europe, but it's moved to the United States because we have uh, more incentives here. We don't have the price controls that they have. This is the biggest market. And um, Americans actually, we pay le actually less for generic drugs than Europeans do because of uh, various factors. But uh, uh, what gets people so upset is that some of these new, you know, expensive breakthrough drugs do cost more in the United States. But the upside of it is, is that we have far more drugs. We have access to more drugs. We get them sooner than Europeans do. And so as a result, um, 
Americans live longer um, um, after they um, after they get a disease like cancer or heart disease. You know, we fare better than Europeans do um, in healthcare treatment. And you know, big pharma is easy to attack because that's the thing that people see. You know, that's the one place where you really you know uh, uh, reach it into your wallet to spend money. But it's actually a fairly small part of the healthcare system. Um, it's you know only one dime of a of every dollar in healthcare spending goes to the pharmacy, and that dime does more than anything else that you spend. In fact, you know, you know, it's been argued that it, it does as much as the rest of the system together. So this kind of drug development is absolutely essential for improving healthcare going forward. Right. So if we want to have you know new cures for uh, for Alzheimer's, new treatments for diabetes, you know, we should want to encourage these companies to keep innovating instead of doing what Europe does, which is basically to discourage innovation. You draw a very interesting comparison in your essay between the way the press has covered um, the infamous Martin Shkreli, uh, pharma bro, as he's yes. known, uh, with another case that involved access to drugs, that of the Lockerbie bomber Abdelbasset al-Magrani. Um, this is kind of a complicated comparison, but maybe you could say a bit about, about uh, those two cases and what they, you know, what they reveal. Yes, um, there was. Th- there have been thousands of news articles about the price gouging that was done by an American businessman, Martin Shkreli, because he took a generic drug that had cost thirteen dollars and fifty cents a pill, and he jacked up the price to seven hundred and fifty dollars. This was a drug used by by AIDS patients and some others. Um, and this was considered a great indictment of the American system. How can we have these profiteers ruining people's health? Now. That was definitely outrageous, but it doesn't reflect a fundamental flaw in the U.S. system. It's something that can and actually is being addressed by, you know, by other methods without having to cripple the whole industry. But a much more instructive story about the difference between the United States and Europe is a drug called Zetika. Um, and this has gotten very little publicity except in connection with um, uh, Al-Magrahi, who, uh, you know, known as the Lockerbie bomber. He was convicted in connection with the bombing of the Lockerbie, of the plane that crashed over um, Lockerbie, Scotland, and he was sentenced to life in prison. But he got prostate cancer, and he was released on humane grounds because um, there was a, a, the British health system said, we have no treatment for him at all. He's going to die um, within a few months. Well, he was released to much international outrage, and he went home. And his family managed to get uh, uh, reportedly in America, where the drug was approved first, this drug called Zetigo. It was a new breakthrough drug. And he lived almost another three years. And and there was more international outrage, you know. Um, but in fact, he benefited the, uh, the way that Americans do from having this new drug. And, you know, during the time that he was living thanks to this drug, uh, the British National Health Service refused to give it to its patients. They, it was, you know, it was an expensive new drug. And, and what European countries tend to do when a new breakthrough drug comes out is they hold off on approving it for their patients, uh, on including it in their health plans until there's another one that comes out that, so the competition drives down the price or they say, we want to study it some more. And what happened in Scotland, I mean, Scot- it, um, it took three years um, after that for the, you know, for the British system to approve it and only then for some patients. And it took another two years for Scotland to approve it, and again, only for some patients. And, you know, there was a headline in the uh, Express uh, newspaper that I think summed it up. It said, cancer drug good enough for Lockerbie Bomber will not be given to Scots and HS patients. Right. 
Now, talking about uh, healthcare more generally, proponents, and there's quite a few now in the United States of socialized medicine, uh, typically cite America's lower life expectancy as evidence for why the country needs to adopt a European-style system where the government provides subsidized health care to everybody. Um, You've dedicated a very interesting section of your essay to explaining why those comparisons are are, uh, misleading. you know, what, what are some of the differences between the U.S. and European populations on, on uh, how long they're living, and how do they affect the numbers? Mm-hmm. Well, it's true that life expectancy is lower in the United States than, you know, than in other affluent countries in Europe, but it's not because those countries have nationalized health care systems or lower prices for prescription drugs. And if the United States um, imitated their policies, the, the life expectancy gap would actually increase because we'd be getting worse health care. Uh, the reason that there's a life expectancy gap, I mean, there are many factors that explain it because it's driven by so many different things. One of the first is is that the United States has much greater um, economic and, and ethnic diversity than these countries do. Um, there are proportionally more poor people in the United States than these other countries. You know, Kay Heimowitz has written um, here at City Journal about how uh, um, we have this very high rate of of child poverty because we admit so many low-skilled immigrants. We also have a lot of single-parent households compared with other countries. And poor people everywhere tend to die sooner because, you know, they have higher rates of smoking, diabetes, substance abuse, accidents, things like that. So that's one of the main reasons for the gap. But But there are many others as well. Um, America has a much higher rate of obesity. It's it's about about twice the rate in Europe, nine times the rate in Japan. And uh, I mean, you know, some interesting statistics are that people you know point to Scandinavia and say, "Gee, they have higher life expectancy." Well, Scandinavian Americans in Minnesota have almost the same life expectancy. And people point to Japan, which has the world's highest life expectancy of eighty four, but um, and Singapore also has very high, but. Asian Americans in the United States, their life expectancy is at least 85. Um, so, so once you disaggregate the populations and start looking at, um, you know, various factors involved with the way people are living, their pop, you know, their their level of wealth. Um, the the numbers get much more complicated. They do. Uh, I mean, the other factors are that uh, that America, until the 1980s, had much higher rates of smoking than these other countries, especially among women, and that's by some estimates accounted for 40 percent of the gap. And also, there's just there are more fatal accidents. There, you know, Americans drive a lot more. There are more car accidents. There are more more drug overdoses. There, you know, there are more um, homicides. So, so when you add all those factors together, the surprising thing is that the is is that the gap isn't even larger. And the reason that it's not is that Americans get better health care, particularly for cancer and cardiovascular disease. And, and a major reason they get that better health care is that they get more drugs, they get more new drugs for it. Now, President Trump, you mentioned this earlier, um, is no fan of the pharmaceutical companies. He's accused, he's accused them of getting away with murder. That's his exact quote. And he's at least gestured in the direction of price controls and maybe more than that going forward, as, as you earlier suggested. Yet at the same time, his administration has viewed the issue a little differently once you look at some of the other policies that they are pursuing. Um, what reforms has his administration enacted that might address the issue of high prices 
and is it working? Well, they're trying to cut the red tape that, that slows the development of drugs and that and that prevents competition in the marketplace. And you know, they they've got some veterans of conservative think tanks. You know, Scott Gottlieb, Scott, uh, Scott Gottlieb, the head of the FDA, he was at. Uh, uh, at the American Enterprise Institute, and and our very own uh, Paul Howard from the Manhattan Institute is his assistant, and 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 they've been pushing the, the, the kind of reforms that free market think tanks have been advocating, which is basically more competition, you know, less regulation, and um, this would accelerate the uh, the availability of generics, and, and would would that be one? Exactly. That's one of the big ways to do it is to approve more generic drugs more quickly. And and the way it's worked is that the bureaucracy is so complicated in Washington that the companies have been gaming the system to basically keep competitors from entering the marketplace. It's incredibly complicated. But under Gottlieb, the FDA approved last year twice as many uh, new generic drugs um, um, as ever. It was a record. And this year, they're actually outdoing that pace. And so that, you know, the more generic drugs you get in the market, the more competition there is um, and, and, and the lower prices are. There, there does seem to be a kind of internal inconsistency in the Trump administration on this question, you know, between the president's own sort of more populist uh, uh, Twitter rants and uh, and you know the the actual policies that are being cooked up by his uh, administrative agencies. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't know how many um, articles in City Journal he's read and how much time he spent reading free market think tanks. Yeah, I mean it's very easy to just instinctively say let's lower prices. Politicians love to do that because. Um, it's much easier to lower prices this year. It's much more appealing to try and save voters money this year rather than try and save their lives in 10 years. But, um, and, you know, and it's very unfortunate that his administration, you know, since, I, you know, since the article appeared, um, they have, have proposed that Medicare should start pegging the price it pays for prescription drugs to the, to the yeah, average yeah. price in Europe. And that basically means importing their price controls. So, um, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it's understandably frustrating that you know that the Europeans are free riders; that they basically benefit from our innovations, and Americans do. You know, we have about a quarter of the world's income, but we provide about two thirds of the pharmaceutical industry's profits. So, that's not fair. But on the other hand, we do get more drugs, and we get them sooner, and we live longer as a result. And and on the, and the whole, key, the real key is that we're developing those drugs still. And yes, that's extremely important. Exactly. And economists, you know, have done the estimates, and they say even if you allow for the extra money that Americans pay, we more than get our money's worth. You know, we get something like $600 billion worth of benefits from the extra life and, and less time and disability. Don't forget to check out John Tierney's work on our website, www.city-journal.org. Uh, the essay we've been talking about is called What the Prescription Drug Debate Gets Wrong?, it's uh, in our latest issue, and it's available on our website. You can follow John on Twitter, at John Tierney NYC. We'd also love to hear your comments about today's episode on Twitter, at City Journal. Lastly, if you do like the show and want to hear more, please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks, John, for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.